we're in this series called Basic, and it has at its heart this idea that we're very good at overcomplicating the things that Jesus called us to do. We're very, very good at taking a basic relationship, these basic relationships that Jesus models for us in Scripture, and overcomplicating them. We're good at taking Christianity and overcomplicating it, and instead of this thing being free and light and good, Jesus said, come all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We actually make it heavy laden. We make it not restful. And at the heart of the series is getting back to those three core relationships that Jesus modeled for us uh, and, and living into the basic goodness of following Jesus. Jesus models three relationships for us. He models a relationship up with his father, in with those who already know, and out with those who do not yet know up that relationship with his father. We see Jesus throughout the New Testament. He, he, he withdraws to be with his father. He prays. He, he seeks out solitude and silence. That is the place where he engages in that upward relationship. Of course, there's other things like going to the temple and worship, the things that we do in our up relationship, like sing and pray and even give generously. I mean, those are, those are acts of that upward relationship. But Jesus also operated in an inward and in relationship with those people who knew. Jesus invested himself most heavily in 12 people in his three years of public ministry. And out of those 12, he chose three, even more to invest himself in. And we, and we see him living in that inner relationship of close community and love and affection and joy that Jesus models for us. And then that moves out. It, it becomes about the person who does not yet know. So we never divide the world into those who don't know Jesus and those who do. As if those who do are better, we divide them into the world of those who know Jesus and those who don't know him personally yet because we're people of hope and we have optimism and we're, we have a job to do. We're called to connect with those people. And that's where we're going next week. This week, we're focusing on the inn. If you were here last week, we had a, a really great uh, group of folks from our Grace Campus. Those of you who are new to us know that we are, you need to know that we're a multi-site church. So we, um, I, I have the opportunity of pastoring one church in two locations. I pastor you and I pastor Grace Campus. And people ask, well, what does Kyle do at Grace? And the answer is everything, you know. Uh, the answer is I do everything with and for them that I would do with and for you. And it's a really great opportunity, but I, you guys don't get a chance to intermingle a lot. So we built in a week last week where four of you went with us to Grace. Four of Grace came to Regen and got to share some of the stories. And I, I really loved that. And I think as we see that fit in thematically as we're teaching and preaching, we're going to continue to do that and continue to create some opportunities for some discipleship to build that in even as campuses, but we're focusing in on that in relationship today, that relationship that Jesus spoke of when he says, and this is not on the screen, Dan, he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says something stunning. He says the entire law and the prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament, that three-quarters dearth of scripture that is kind of scary and intimidating with lots of names that we don't know how to pronounce, that all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in those two commands. Love God with all everything. It's not how do I love God with all of my mind and all of my heart. It's like, you know what, love God with everything you are. That is that upward. But then it moves to in. It says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. And, and, and as we think about today, talking about community, talking about in, 
as we talk about community, often those talks boil down to what our moms taught us, which is what? Like, be nice, right? Like, play nice with others, be a good little boy, be a good little boy, girl, and, and, that, and that's true, and that's good, and actually loving your neighbor as yourself may, from the outside or to the casual observer, look like someone is nice. Someone is very loving, the first thing you'll say to them is like, oh, they're like really nice. I hope the words expand, because by the way, do you know what word is never in scripture? Nice, okay? You are called to be loving, you're not called to be nice, okay? And those two are different things. But if I teach this today, if I preach this to you and make this sermon about three practices for being nice to one another, we've done two things wrong. The first thing is that I've stopped being your pastor and started acting like your preschool teacher, okay? I don't need to teach you to be nice. You've had that ingrained into since about three years old. The other thing that we do is we replace the gospel for moralism. We replace the gospel for moralism. Be nice is moralism. Do nice things is moralism. The gospel calls us to deeper, more rooted things. Jesus' Jesus's invitation in, in calling us into community isn't about being nice. Instead, Jesus is inviting you into a deeper experience with himself in community. That's kind of the whole talk today that Jesus is inviting you into a deeper experience with himself that is only found in community. Uh, Aaron brought this up to me a couple weeks ago, and so I wanted to show it to you, and I think I read it last week. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, can you bring it up for me, Dan? Thank you. So now you, because I was mostly had my back turned and it was starting to get weird. Um, uh, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. In the coming of Jesus, something new happens in the way God works in the world. And that new thing is that whereas before God exclusively worked through one ethnic people group, the Jewish people, that God chose out of all the nations on the earth, Israel, to express his glory and bring his kingdom through it. And you could experience that kingdom as a non-Jew, as a Gentile. You just had to be circumcised, and that's painful, and if you don't know what that is, go home and ask your mom. Um, and a few other things, and, and that was not, and, and even though there was this missional bent to Israel, that well, they weren't often living into it, and then in the coming of Jesus, the, the doors of the kingdom are thrown open wide, so it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're slave or free, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter if you were black or white, it doesn't matter any of these things, what matters is that in Christ we are one. And so Paul is writing to this church where Jews and Gentiles who have historically not liked each other very much, they've not been very nice, uh, they, they are now in a community together. And it's uncomfortable. And Paul in Ephesians 2 is trying to help them understand that their identity, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their background, regardless of the animosity between them, that their identity is that they are now fellow citizens in the kingdom, that they are siblings in God's family, not cousins, siblings. In the church, we like to operate as cousins, right? Think about your relationship with your cousins. I want to know them, but not that much. I want to see them, but not that often. So um, I have all these cousins um, none of them, okay, none of my relatives are here. Okay, good. Um, I have all these cousins that I just don't know anything about. Really, they're my mom's cousins, right? Um, and I'll see them out somewhere, and I'm like, I don't know anything about you. 
don't know anything. And, I'm, and at best, sometimes with my cousins, now I have one cousin who is like a sister because there's all boys and then poor Audrey. And, um, and so she's like a sister. She's getting married this summer and I'm ready to beat up that guy anytime, anytime. Do you know what I mean? Like I want to hug him in the eye, like on the day of this wedding and whisper like, if you hurt her, right? <laughs> and like, he'll be like, I won't. But if you do, you know what I mean? Like, um, but the rest of my cousins, I don't really know them. You see them, you kind of know things about them. And after five minutes of conversation, it gets awkward. That's the kind of contact we tend to set as the goal. Not brother and sister in the kingdom. We like to be cousins. But the call is to be brothers and sisters. We are the same family. And then Paul says we are God's house, that we are being joined together in him, becoming a temple for the Lord Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Before you had to go to one, in the Old Testament, you went to one geographical place, the temple in Jerusalem, and that is where God dwelt. God dwelt in that one place. But now, in the new covenant, God has done this thing where right now, we gather together are the place where God lives. We are his house. This building is not where God lives. We as a community are where God lives, and this is the temple. We, when we are gathered together, are the place where people encounter Jesus. I love your baby. I'm just going to say it. I, just you let her do it. She wants, she wants to preach. It's all good. She's good. Um, I love it. Um, Frankie, you're my, you're my favorite. So we are the temple where God dwells. They don't have to go, people don't have to go to to Jerusalem to meet with God. They walk into a room where Christians are together and they're together and that is where Jesus is, where two or three are gathered. There I am with them, although that's not really what that text is about. It's about church discipline, but we can talk about that later. We are the temple where the Lord lives and this is our identity. This is what it means to have this inward relationship and and that's why the most important words in this text are in him in him. The community and relationships and fellowship that we share with one another as the people of Jesus, it is not extraneous to what we do. When Jesus, so when we think about community, there are all these commands that go with it, right? Love one another, forgive one another, serve one another, accept one another, show hospitality to one another, bear with one another's burdens, be patient with one another before bearing with one another. There are all these shoulds. And so we feel like, and this is what I'm trying to unpack is, We feel like there's Jesus telling us to go do community. There's Jesus telling, telling us to go do community. And all of these commands are these things that are extraneous to Jesus. But if we are being built into a community in him, if in him we are being built together into a faithful people, if in him we are being built together into a family and fellow citizens and a temple, then it is not Jesus telling us to go do something outside of himself. Really the command and invitation into community is an experience of Jesus' own life. It is an experience of Jesus' own life. It is not separate from Jesus. It's not like Jesus observes us from afar telling us to go do these other things. Our experience of community is an experience with Jesus. And we can think about this in two different ways. The first is that when you say yes to Jesus, when you step across the line of faith, you come into a relationship shared eternally by Father, Son, and Spirit. As Christians, we believe and confess a mystery that God is one God eternally existing in three persons. And that 
in between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, there is a love and an affection and a community, and we become part of that community through faith in Jesus. So that community is part of God's own life. God doesn't tell us to have community because it's something that he doesn't need, but you do. No, God is inviting us to experience what he has experienced from eternity, which is love and fellowship and unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as it was and is and shall be forever. Another way to think about this is that if Christ is, Christ tells us that as the church, we are his body, when we interact with one another and interlock with one another, in love and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness and patience and forbearance and servanthood and humility, when we do that, we are not experiencing anything less than Jesus himself. This is what I, I want to root this into us because otherwise everything I say from here on out is like moralism and should, should, should. The gospel does not should on us. The gospel does not should on us. The gospel invites us into relationship with Jesus and with one another. And in fact, when we relate to one another, we are relating to Jesus. Because all of these are things happening in him as if all the community is happening. Like Jesus is the cup and all the community is in the coffee. It is, with, it is contained by Jesus. It is happening in him. I'm thirsty. So this is what is at stake. What is at stake is this. To the degree to which we participate in community. The degree to which we participate in community is the degree to which we experience the grace of Jesus, which is only found in community. The degree to which we participate in community is the degree to which we experience the grace of Jesus, a special grace which is only found in community. Community, ultimately then, is how we experience Jesus. Community is a means of grace. Community is a way that we experience, go away Siri, community is a way that we experience the grace of Jesus expressed through other people. Let me give you a few examples. First, when we walk through grief and suffering and we walk through it in community, when we walk through grief and suffering and we walk through those things in community, when somebody is texting with you and praying with you and talking with you on the phone, when they're spending time with you face to face, there is comfort there, there is peace there, there is, there is even in the midst of the darkness a joy there. And that is not emanating solely from that other person, that is Jesus operating through that person to extend to you his joy, his peace, his grace, his comfort. This is why we, as the people of Jesus, are the closest many people ever get to experiencing Jesus because he puts skin on through us. When we walk in community, our rough edges are worn off. If you had a college roommate, you are a better person for it, right? Because in the closeness of community, um, rough edges are worn off. Right now we have two people living with us. Rough edges are being worn off like when I leave my underwear on the, the bathroom floor, which was fine when it was just us. Well, probably not, but more fine when it was just us, right? Less fine when other people are in there. Um, the rough edges get worn off. A really good example of this is a lot of you know, I, I teach a guy's Bible study on Tuesday nights, lots of fun. And uh, we've seen a number of guys come and go over the years. And um, somebody came for a couple weeks and then left. And I said to somebody in the community, that those guys, I said, I, I must, I literally said, I must have said or done something, which is why they left. And he looks at me and he goes, you always do that. 
And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you always assume that people leave because like you did something, which, and he, so he said, first of all, you're not that important, okay? Uh, because it's not all about you. And second of all, you need to get out of like, you keep going into this room of like shame where it's your fault. That's a really good example of community. That's Jesus letting me off the hook of a lie that I was believing about myself through somebody else. They spoke truth and grace. Imagine a world where we confessed our sin to one another. Did you notice that? As if to move would indicate that you, in, or you are in sin, right? Don't breathe. <laughs> if we confessed our sin to one another, that is a very hard and vulnerable thing to do. But imagine for a moment that we did that. What grace you find, for those of you who have ever done that, what grace you find when the person you're sitting across responds with grace and truth. There is tremendous grace and truth found because you've been living in shame with your head hung low, feeling like a failure, and you confess your sin, and somebody says, okay, well, that's not okay, but I love you. That is not simply that person's love being given to you. It is, but it is also more. It is the love and grace and truth of Jesus being conveyed to you through community. This is why I'm saying that when we enter into community, which is hard, and we're going to get there, we are actually experiencing the love and grace of Jesus because that happens in him. It happens in him. It is not extraneous to him. It is not something he just asks us to do for kicks and giggles. Instead, the invitation to community is a deeper, an invitation to a deeper experience with Jesus. And so we're going to talk about three barriers to community, three barriers that we have trouble leaping. Uh, and then we're going to talk about a couple practices for community and look at some of these in questions. But ultimately, these barriers to community are not barriers to just having friends, although they are. They're not barriers to having deeper community, though they are. They're ultimately barriers that stop you from experiencing the grace of Jesus, which is not what Jesus wants for you. So we're going to look at those. Three barriers, three barriers, visionary dreaming, social anxiety and discomfort, and a high cost. Visionary dreaming, I also call uh, sitcom friendship idolatry syndrome. Sitcom friendship idolatry. How many of you have watched Friends? How many of you have watched Parks and Rec? How many of you have watched Cheers? <laughs> A lot of good friendships there, right? And those friendships that we see on the TV become the standard for our friendships. And any friendship that do not look like Monica and Ross and Rachel and all of them, like fails, we assume, must not be true community. I mean, if you, but, but here's the thing, watch friends. Do these people actually work ever? Like, I mean, they're somehow always like in a house or in a car. I'm like, how, are you not supposed to be living, is this all happening in the evenings? Well, it doesn't seem like it, so how does this work? Um, that is not the standard for community. That is an idol. That is an idealized version of community. And maybe it's not TV. It might come from friendships that you had in college or friendships that you had when you were first married or a special friendship that you had with somebody that has since moved away. And that friendship, that model, that experience of community becomes the standard against which, against which every other community experience is measured, and guess what? Every time it falls short. At the church we served in Illinois, there was this woman who was in her 30s and literally could never stop talking about her friend group in college. And I wanted to be like, you're 35. This was like 13 years ago that you had these best friends that were so amazing and da 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 and, and she could never fully enter into community because it wasn't that standard. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually talks about this idea of visionary dreaming. He says this. 
He says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands, demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself or herself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. Visionary dreamers, when it comes to community, walk in with rules, and they are adamant that this is how community should look. And if it doesn't, they don't... They, they, here's what happens. They either kill community because everybody is living under this weight of shame and anxiety that they're never going to live up to it, that they walk away, or that person walks away com- from community because they just give up. And here's what you miss out. Here's what you miss out on when you are visionary dreaming about community. You miss out on what God is inviting you to in that very moment. So I'm not going to participate in this community because it's not what I want to do, but what you're missing out on is the thing that God wants to form in you may only happen in this community right now, the one that you have right now. Not the one then, not the one you might have later. It is fully giving yourself over to community now, as awkward and weird and uncomfortable as it may be, so that we can experience the grace that Jesus has for us right now in this community. God hates a visionary dreamer, it says. It makes the dreamer proud. The man who fashions a visionary ideal it's an, of community demands that it be realized. Because the way that we need to learn how to overcome this is just by looking at the people that God has you with and accepting that this is who God has you with right now. And maybe it's not the best friendship you ever had. But oftentimes when we say it's not the best friendship I've ever had, we're really pressing abort anyway. It's like this weird defensive detachment. Okay, the next one is social anxiety and discomfort. So everybody feels uncomfortable about community. We've all felt this way since middle school. And by the way, let's talk about for a second how middle schoolers have no idea what it's like. There is no more ugly duckling phase in middle school life. Have you seen, these fifth graders look like supermodels. They've got perfect teeth. There's nothing on their skin. I mean, like, I'm like, they dress better than me in in adolescence than I do now. You know, it's actually actually really frustrating. I'm bitter about it. But (laughs) you should have to have braces for four years. It's just part of the process of becoming an adult, right? You need to have those things cranked in there and the bands and you can't, you know, and all your school pictures, kind of like, you know. Um, Everybody needs that. It's formational. But So we all feel this discomfort that we've all felt, like, will people like me? And I'm nervous about that, and I don't know, and, um, and I'm going to dance like I don't know, and what if they don't? But then, but, and, I'll, and I'm being honest with you, the number one thing that we hear from you, church, this I'm talking to you, the number one reason that y'all won't participate in community life in our church, you tell us, is I have social anxiety. And that is a barrier to the grace of God that you just need to get over. No, I'm just kidding. Here's, here's, what, here's what's happening. Here's what I watch generationally happen, too. If you are over 50, when presented with an opportunity to, for an in-relationship, you are happy to step in, but then you don't really share too much, and you kind of just drip out your story a little bit at a time because you just want to make sure everybody's okay. So let me drip it out. Everybody's okay. Let me drip it out. Everybody's okay. Let me drip it out. Here's what millennials do. Millennials are like, I can't, I can't, I won't, I'm uncomfortable, I can't, I can't, I won't. I finally come, and now in the first five minutes, everybody knows my whole story. <laughs> Probably somewhere in the middle is good, right? Um, not floodlighting and living authentically, but so we need to, we do, I, 
and here's what I would be honest with you about. I was trying to write this today, and it's been a long week, and I don't know necessarily the word to give you for overcoming social anxiety other than to keep a clear picture in your mind, not what could go badly if you come to Bible study and it feels weird, but what could go well. And to not let social anxiety or discomfort or introvertism, um, I am living with three introverts right now and they seem to be doing okay even though I think they're poisoning me slowly. and not letting those things, because here's, then we kind of end up in this purgatory where we're watching on the other side of a glass, people have what we want. And sometimes it takes reminding yourself who in the room you know, and how much they love you, and how there is built into our community a willingness to love you that might just open the door for you to find friendship. And I, listen, I'm not telling you that social anxiety is real, I'm not telling you that you're weak, I'm not telling you that you're dumb. What I am saying is that the degree to which you listen to that narrative in your head, I mean, that's going to really lessen your experience of what Jesus wants to do. And what if the only way to get over social anxiety, what if the only way to overcome that in your life is to actually step into community? And, and here's the other problem with like social discomfort and social anxiety. We spend so much time worrying about how we feel in community, we're forgetting the other people in the room. And sometimes there's tremendous freedom from social anxiety when we care more about loving others than we worry about how we're being perceived. If I can live in a place of, I'm gonna love them very well and be present to them, something happens, we become self-forgetful. And on the other end of a four-hour party, you're like, that was really good. Because I met some people, I was open, these kind of things. The last thing is the barrier to community is that the cost is just too high. Tim Keller has this really excellent quote who says, everyone says they want community and friendship, but mention accountability or commitment and they run the the other way. Everybody wants friendship, everybody wants community as long as it doesn't require commitment or accountability. Community without accountability or commitment is speed dating through life. Community, if you want, I mean, without accountability, without commitment, without vulnerability, all you're doing is speed dating through life. Which is why, and this is how you know that you've done that, you've had a lot of friends but never many close ones. We are so hungry for, in a world of where everything happens through this, right? We are desperate for belonging. We are desperate for community. We are desperate for acceptance. We are desperate for somebody to know our stories. But it comes with the price tag of commitment and it comes with the price tag of accountability. It comes with the price tag of, I'm gonna keep showing up. It comes with the price tag of, I keep walking in because I believe there's something God's doing in these people. And it comes with the, it comes with the price tag of accountability. It comes with the price tag of somebody maybe actually calling you on something. It comes with the price tag of people expecting you to follow through on your word. And it comes with the price tag of, if you keep telling me you wanna be friends but you spend the whole time on your phone, you come late and you leave early. But there's never seems to, I always seem to be on the bottom of the priority list, I'm not gonna believe that actually what you want with me is community and friendship, I'm gonna believe that you want the diet Pepsi version of whatever that is. We cannot have what we want in community without paying the price. 
We cannot get what we want out of community without paying the price. The, the shared memories and the inside jokes and the love and the care and the affection that we desire comes with a price tag that some of us just aren't willing to pay. And maybe you're not willing to pay it yet. Maybe you need to work out if these people are trustworthy. But at some point, everybody can tell when you're not paying the price and they're just not going to engage. They're just not. It's not because they don't love you or they don't want to, but they can just tell. So here are a couple practices for, for community really quick. And, and I'll be honest with you, I was, I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit intervenes in the next five minutes because I feel very strongly, honestly, that, I, that we need to teach through this and learn through this together. I am also pretty foggy right now. So uh, one big meeting, a funeral, two talks at a thing yesterday, and I've already preached once a day. So, but, so Holy Spirit, help me out. Authenticity is a practice for community. Authenticity means what? It means openness. It means vulnerability. It means tenderness. It means people know things about me. Authenticity is probably actually the word that people use to describe regen most, which is kind of curious to me because I don't know how we're doing it, but somehow we are. But it comes at a price of being known it comes at a price of people understanding not only your successes, but also your failures. This week, we had some folks in our home, and uh, he got very honest with me about his past. And not in an inappropriate way, not in a way that made me sit there for an hour after I'd made some really delicious chicken Alfredo, and I was like, but I want to eat the chicken Alfredo. I, but it was appropriate, and I thought, this is, this is the building block of community. There needs to be authenticity. There needs to be openness. And frankly, and, and this leads to the next thing, if you're going to practice authenticity and openness and vulnerability, there's got to be some place and space for that. And the place and space for that, honestly, is not usually this moment. We're kind of here to do some specific things in this hour together that do not breed the depth of relationship, which is why there's women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies and art and family things. There's one-on-ones because ultimately there's there's authenticity needs also to be expressed with hospitality. Now, what is hospitality? Hospitality is, yes, inviting people into your home. There's hospitality, but Henry Nowen defines hospitality as the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. It's the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality means that you need to free up space in your life and time in your life for relationship to happen. It means you have to free up space in your life and time in your life for something to happen. And depending on who you are, either one or both of those things is terrifying. And, gener- and so you have to open up space. There has to be spots in your calendar. There has to be a place in your home. There has to be time in your schedule where people can come in and be authentic, that they can experience. And, if, and not even in your home. Maybe you don't like having people in your home. That's okay. Like you go out to dinner. You, you go out to coffee. That there is space in your life for connection to happen. And by the way, hospitality does not mean entertaining. If I could tell you one of the things that we have done wrong or not well is that we ha- it's that we have picked up our house too much before people come over. And it leads the impression that if your house isn't spotless, um, you can't have people over. The only reason it's spotless is because we worked our fannies off for four hours before you came. Do you know what I'm saying? And, you, and that the bedroom door is closed, my friends. Uh, and before Sarah moved in with us and in that bedroom, that usually when people are coming, let's throw everything into this downstairs bedroom 
and just close the door and maybe nobody will notice. Or if they were coming over, we need to put the coats, let's put it on the other side of the bed and then nobody will notice, right? But, but hospitality is not entertaining. It is engaging in relationship. And so if you want to practice hospitality, here's a few things. Make a simple meal. Answer yes when somebody says, can I bring something? Like build that in. I would say about one of our priorities in our marriage is about once a week there's somebody in our home because that's a priority to us. Um, Hospitality. And that means, again, for you, like, and maybe the other word for this for you might be pursuit. Because I hear some folks in our community say, I don't feel pursued. And that's okay. But people usually pick up what they put down. And um, especially for millennials in the room, we're kind of used to being pursued as a matter of course because we went to college or we went to camp or we went to school and that kind of happened for us. You have to pursue in order to be pursued. And, And here's the rule in our community. I'll be super honest with you. Like, as a staff, we pick up what you put down. So if kind of what you're putting down is we're just here every Sunday and that's about all we want, we're, we're going to give you space to have that because Steph and I were on staff at a church that after you came twice, the pastor was in your house like telling you the five things that you needed to do, trying to give you room. But I think sometimes room is perceived as non-pursuit. I'd rather give you the sense that you're not being pursued to give you a little space than to be in your face shaming you after three weeks. Does that make sense? But hopefully there's an invitation in the community to like keep stepping in and in and in. And then the last piece is accountability. If authenticity relates to invitation, then accountability relates to challenge. If authenticity relates to invitation, Jesus invites a lot, then accountability relates to challenge. Accountability sometimes means that if I don't see you here for a while, I'm going to ask where you've been. Not because I'm judging you. Believe me, I have many other things to do with my life. It's because I love you but also because if you're one of ours, then I'm going to ask what's going on in your life. Accountability means the freedom to be asked hard questions. Accountability means that we're going to care for one another in our faults, and we're going to seek freedom for one another. We've had a lot of conversation in my guy's Bible study in, the, in, in, in a lot of areas of sin and how we can keep moving forward. It's really rich. So let me ask you some in questions, and uh, we'll take communion. Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, resent, or disregard? Is there space in my life for relationships that are Christ-centered? Do I grumble and complain about anything? When was the last time I was asked a hard question and answered honestly? Am I jealous, critical, irritable, or touchy? I love that question. Do I take on the discipline of confrontation? The one I didn't get on the screen was, when people walk away from me, do they feel loved? Another question could be, do I brighten a room by entering or leaving? Uh, My mentor says that everybody brightens a room, some by entering and some by leaving. Okay. Everybody brightens a room, some by entering. Do I brighten a room by entering or leaving? So if you get to the end of the New Testament, there's these little letters written by John who is known as the disciple Jesus loved. He was Jesus' best friend. He was his absolute best friend. And in fact, there's this text in, in one of the Gospels where it says at the Last Supper, John was reclining on the breast of Jesus. Okay, 
every man in the room is like, no thank you. Um, but male, we, we, li- we are in an unusual cultural moment um, where males do not express physical affection, but through most of history, that was the norm. So John is writing this letter about love and relationships. It's an incredibly hard book to preach through because after about five seconds, it sounds like you've been listening to a, a CD on repeat because it kind of is like, if you love God, then you will love people. And if you don't love people, then you don't love God. If you don't love God, you won't love people. But if you love God, you'll love people. Love, love. It's like watching somebody play like tennis, like, right? Like the themes just kind of go back and forth. And, and John in that letter says this, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see? Community is the boot camp. It's the gym. It's the training ground. It's the laboratory where we learn how to love. And we do it imperfectly and we fail. We leave people disappointed. We botch things. We, we don't respond the way we should have. We don't get there quickly enough. We we, people assumed that we knew something that we didn't know. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of risk and mess. But Aaron pointed out to me this week that if community is happening in him, the good news is like there's kind of a container holding us together. And even when we fail and connections aren't made and we push too hard or not hard enough, when we don't ask a question we should have had and we don't show up for something we should have shown up, grace abounds grace abounds because we're held together and yet the call is if someone says I love God but hates a fellow believer that person is a liar for if we don't love people we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see and so John in his letter was right dear children let us love one another for he first loved us let's pray God we um I just, I'd look at this room and I see all of my friends uh, just longing for community and connection and Um, I I just pray that we would be a community that embodies authenticity and hospitality and and accountability. That somehow you would bind together all three of those. Um, God, help us, uh, show us your grace, give us some slow pitches that we could hit out of the park, but ultimately help us to experience you along the way so it's not just another list of things we should do, but something you invite us into together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, James 3 says, real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, certainly not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its